Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites. Hi, I'm John Sheldon, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes or so, I'll bring you up to date on selections from important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our June 2016 issue. You will hear a transition tone between summaries. Let's get started. Schizophrenia is a chronic mental disorder with a high economic burden that increases with disease severity. Costs contributing to this burden include direct health care costs, such as hospital inpatient stays, emergency room visits, outpatient visits, and prescription drugs. There are also direct non-health care costs, comprising law enforcement and homeless shelters. Also included are disease-related indirect costs, such as unemployment, productivity loss, premature mortality, and caregiver time. In 2002, the societal costs of schizophrenia were reported to be $62 billion. Structural changes in the past decade likely affected this estimate, including Medicare coverage for outpatient prescription drugs and legislations which have affected both health care coverage access and coverage quality. In this article funded by Otsuka and Lundbeck, the authors used a prevalence-based approach to assess the economic burden of schizophrenia, which resulted in an estimate of $155 billion for 2013. The largest components of this burden were costs associated with unemployment, which was 38%, productivity loss due to caregiving at 34%, and direct health care costs at 24%. This study supports previous findings of schizophrenia as a costly disease to society and is an important update of the current burden. The study also supports the importance of crisis-oriented direct costs typically seen in inpatient and emergency care. However, it also shows that direct non-health care costs of law enforcement and incarceration are significant contributors and that indirect costs of unemployment and caregiving greatly contribute to the economic burden. The authors conclude that therapy should aim at improving not only symptom control, but also cognition and functional performance, which are associated with substantial non-health care and indirect costs. Ketamine infusions have been shown to rapidly reduce suicidal ideation in patients with treatment-resistant unipolar and bipolar depression. However, the extent to which repeated doses of ketamine affect measures of suicidal ideation in those with current suicidal ideation is not known. To investigate this question, researchers from Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard examined the anti-suicidal effects of ketamine in patients with treatment-resistant depression and suicidal thoughts. Patients received a total of six slow infusions of low-dose ketamine over the course of three weeks. The patient's suicidal thoughts decreased throughout the course of the six ketamine infusions. By the end of the final infusion, half of the patients no longer endorsed any suicidal thoughts. Furthermore, by the end of the follow-up period, which lasted for three months after the final ketamine infusion, two patients continued to no longer have any suicidal thoughts. 
Given the severity of the patients at baseline, the researchers view their results as promising, but recognize that further studies involving ketamine's anti-suicidal properties are warranted. SSRIs are the most widely used antidepressant medication for treating patients with depression. However, ocular complication has been noted occasionally. In this case-controlled study using data from the Taiwan National Health Insurance Database, the researchers recruited 1,465 patients with newly diagnosed acute angle closure glaucoma as case participants and 5,712 persons without glaucoma who were matched according to sex, age, and index year as controls. Immediate SSRI users were defined as patients who received at least one prescription for SSRIs within seven days before the date of the glaucoma diagnosis. Patients who received no SSRI prescriptions were defined as non-users. Odds ratios and 95% confidence intervals were used to evaluate the risk of acute angle closure glaucoma associated with SSRI use. After adjustment for confounding factors, including non-SSRI antidepressant use and all comorbidities, the multivariate logistic regression model revealed that the adjusted odds ratio of acute angle closure glaucoma was 5.8 for immediate SSRI users when compared with non-users. On further analysis, as a reference for non-users, the adjusted odds ratio was 8.53 for participants with an average daily SSRI dose exceeding 20 milligrams. Immediate SSRI users have a 5.8-fold increased risk of acute angle closure glaucoma. The authors conclude that before prescribing SSRIs, clinicians should be aware of the potential risks for glaucoma among elderly patients with depression. Small-scale studies of auditory processing cognitive remediation programs have demonstrated efficacy in schizophrenia. With funding support from Synovian, the authors of this multicenter, rater-blinded, randomized controlled study compared auditory-focused cognitive remediation and nonspecific video games. In an attempt to minimize interparticipant variation, all participants were stabilized on a standardized antipsychotic regimen of lorazidone. Subjects were either already receiving lorazidone or were switched for the study. Lorazidone was flexibly dosed from 40 to 160 milligrams a day, and all subjects received it for at least six weeks prior to randomization. After stabilization to lorazidone, over 120 patients were randomized to adjunctive cognitive remediation, either auditory-focused or video game controlled, which were administered one to two times a week. Over half of the participants completed 25 or more sessions and post-randomization assessments. Auditory processing cognitive remediation combined with lorazidone had no differential improvement over nonspecific video games. As opposed to continuing on lorazidone, switching to lorazidone was associated with a higher rate of discontinuation, 
worse cognitive performance, and higher levels of symptoms throughout. It is therefore possible that participants switching to lorazidone may not have been as stable as those already receiving the agent. This potential lack of stability may have contributed to the lack of differential improvement. Future studies comparing both pharmacologic and behavioral cognitive enhancers should consider a two-by-two -two design, for example, using a control for both the medication and the cognitive remediation. They should most likely use more cognitive remediation sessions over a shorter window of time. In this study, sponsored by the University of Montpellier, researchers explored hidden or latent groupings in a large sample of more than 1,000 hospitalized suicide attempters. Knowing into which group a patient falls might help the clinician to better focus prevention strategies. Eleven variables that define suicidal behavior, such as the level of suicidal intent, the number and degree of lethality of the attempts, or the use of drugs before the attempt, were analyzed using a classical method of clustering. The authors found three groups that were significantly different in every variable related to individuals' suicidal behavior. Those making low-risk attempts without clear planning comprised the first and largest group. The second group was not very different, but they planned ahead in their suicide attempts, taking precautions not to be discovered. Male sex, experience of abuse, more violent methods of attempt, and alcohol or drugs were more often found in this second group compared to the two other groups. Finally, a third group included few but very frequent and early-onset attempters. This group was composed mostly of females who had suffered severe childhood trauma. The authors conclude that identifying relevant clinical profile or clusters may help to categorize suicidal patients into graded levels of risk and treatment, but future studies are needed to confirm these results in independent samples. In this month's CME offering, the authors of the present study examined 12-month and lifetime prevalence, correlates, and psychiatric comorbidity and treatment of non-medical prescription opioid use and DSM-5 non-medical prescription opioid use disorder. They studied data from 36,000 adults who participated in the third wave of the National Epidemiologic Survey on Alcohol and Related Conditions, or NISARC-3, which took place from 2012 to 2013. Current 12-month and lifetime rates of non-medical prescription opioid use and its disorder in NISARC-3 were double the rates from 11 years previous in NISARC-2. Rates of non-medical prescription opioid use were greater among men, but no sex differential was observed for the actual disorder. Prevalence of both its use and disorder were generally greater among 18 to 64-year-olds, whites and Native Americans, and individuals with lower socioeconomic status. Associations were observed between 12-month and lifetime non-medical prescription opioid use and its disorder compared with other drug use disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, 
borderline, schizotypal, and antisocial personality disorders, persistent depression and major depressive disorder, and bipolar 1 disorder. Only 5.5% of individuals with 12-month non-medical prescription opioid use and 18% of individuals with its disorder were ever treated. Non-medical prescription opioid use and its accompanying disorder have considerably increased over the past decade and are associated with a broad array of risk factors and comorbidities that largely go untreated in the United States. More information on the determinants, characteristics, and outcomes of non-medical prescription opioid use and its disorder is needed to support evidence-based interventions and prevention. To read this article and take the CME post-test, please visit the June Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In clinical care, insufficient response and resistance to antipsychotic treatment, as well as significant weight gain, are common clinical problems for which no approved combination strategies exist. In this meta-analysis of eight randomized studies, the efficacy and tolerability of topiramate was compared with placebo or open continuation of the prior antipsychotic in 400 patients with schizophrenia. The average study length was 13 weeks. This study was supported privately and through funding from the National Institute of Mental Health. In placebo-controlled trials, improvements in total psychopathology and positive, negative, and general symptoms were significantly greater with topiramate than with placebo, with medium effect sizes for each variable. Compared with placebo or ongoing antipsychotic treatment, topiramate was also associated with significant body weight reduction, translating into a reduction by 3 kilograms, or nearly 2 body mass index units, compared to the control condition. Topiramate's efficacy for total psychopathology and weight reduction effect were not affected by trial duration, topiramate dose, or by patient's sex, age, inpatient status, and baseline PAN score, or body mass index. However, Clozapine-treated patients experienced greater efficacy with topiramate co-treatment, whereas weight loss was more pronounced when topiramate was combined with antipsychotics other than clozapine. Rates of treatment discontinuation were similar between topiramate and control groups, and except for a near-significant greater risk of parathesia with topiramate, adverse effects were not greater with topiramate than with placebo. The authors conclude that topiramate antipsychotic co-treatment, while being well-tolerated, significantly reduced total, positive, negative, and general psychopathology and weight or body mass index in patients with schizophrenia spectrum disorders. However, larger studies are needed to confirm these findings and to characterize subgroups of patients that would benefit the most from topiramate co-treatment. College students have been the focus of many studies on suicidality and mental health treatment. However, little attention has been given to their non-college attending peers with regard to these issues. 
The authors of the current study examined the 12-month prevalence in mental health treatment of suicidality among college students aged 18 to 25 years and their non-college attending peers in the United States. Data were assessed in over 135,000 young adults who participated in the 2008 through 2013 national surveys on drug use and health. These surveys were conducted by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, an agency of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Compared with full-time college students, other groups that researchers examined, high school students, those not enrolled in a school or college, and part-time college students were significantly more likely to attempt suicide with a plan. The mental health treatment rate among full-time college students with suicidality was similar to the rates among the other three counterparts. The effects of race or ethnicity and serious mental illness on the receipt of mental health treatment were significantly larger among those who did not perceive unmet treatment need than among those who did perceive unmet treatment need. The authors conclude that compared to full-time college students, non-college attending young adults and part-time college students are at higher risk for attempting suicide with the plan. Suicide prevention and intervention strategies should emphasize increasing access to mental health treatment among both college students with suicidality and their non-college attending peers. This is particularly true for minorities and among those who seem to be low risk because they are without serious mental illness and report no need for mental health treatment. There is a growing body of research which finds that while some people recover well in the initial stages after a traumatic event, they develop various types of psychiatric disorders later on. This article investigates risk factors for late-onset disorders up to 72 months after severe injury in a sample of over 1,100 patients hospitalized for more than 24 hours. The author's work was supported by a National Health and Medical Research Council program grant. The authors measured the presence of various disorders at 3, 12, and 72 months, along with identified risk factors of injury severity, social support, recent life events, pain, and past psychiatric history. They performed conditional latent transition analyses to identify risk factors for transitioning out of a no-disorder class and into one of three disorder-based classes, PTSD and depression, alcohol and depression, and alcohol only. These analyses were performed between 3 and 12 months post-injury, transition 1, and between 12 and 72 months post-injury, Transition 2. Predictors of movement into the PTSD and depression class were injury severity at transition 1 and 2, social support at transition 1, and past psychiatric history at transition 1 with anxiety or mood disorders specifically implicated. Predictors of movement into the alcohol and depression class were social support at transition 1 and 2 and injury severity and pain at transition 2.
Movement into the alcohol-only class was predicted only by pain at transition two. A history of substance use or alcohol use disorder before injury was implicated in the movement into both of the alcohol-based classes. The authors conclude that predictors of developing a delayed-onset psychiatric disorder after severe injury differed by duration after injury and by class of disorder. These findings highlight the need to offer targeted screening based on these risk factors for severe injury survivors up to 12 months post-injury, even when presenting without disorders at three months. The findings of the current study funded by the National Institute of Health suggest that recent-onset non-effective psychosis may change diagnosis within the first two years. Diagnostic instability appears to be particularly high in unspecified psychosis, brief psychosis, and delusional disorder. Based on DSM criteria, schizoaffective disorder may be a rare diagnosis in first-episode psychosis, but it may be a very common diagnosis in patients who were initially diagnosed with unspecified psychosis or brief psychosis. Within two years of diagnosis, most patients presenting in first-lifetime non-effective psychotic episodes appear to achieve symptomatic recovery, but the majority do not return to baseline functioning. Of those patients who achieve symptomatic recovery, at least half will experience a recurrence. Compared to other patients suffering from non-effective psychoses, those with schizophrenia appear to have the longest duration of untreated psychosis. This finding from the McLean Harvard First Episode Project may have implications for long-term outcome. A major challenge for psychiatric clinicians is the frequent need to assess acute suicide risk. Sleep difficulties are an important risk factor for suicide. The growing literature connects sleep problems with suicidal thoughts, attempts, and death. However, most of those studies have investigated suicide risks over weeks to months to years. In the present study, the author sought to determine whether sleep problems are an acute suicide risk factor, that is, whether sleep difficulties could predict suicidal thoughts in the short term. This study focused on a single night and observed whether sleep problems during the night could predict suicidal thoughts the next morning. The study, which was sponsored by the National Institute of Mental Health Intramural Program, included 65 inpatients with either major depressive disorder or bipolar disorder. These patients underwent a type of sleep study called polysomnography. Their suicidal thoughts and symptoms of depression were assessed the next morning. The authors found that wakefulness over the course of the night was associated with increased suicidal thoughts the next morning. Being awake in the hour between 4 and 4.59 a.m. was particularly associated with suicidal thoughts. This relationship was still significant even when controlling for age, gender, diagnosis, and severity of depressive symptoms. These findings highlight the importance of sleep in determining suicide risk. Wakefulness in the 4 a.m. hour may be an acute suicide risk factor. 
Therefore, questions that assess sleep may be a helpful addition to a suicide risk assessment. Further research is needed to explore why being awake around 4 a.m. is associated with suicidal thoughts. The Scottish Veterans Health Study is a retrospective cohort study that examines the long-term health of military veterans in Scotland in comparison with 173,000 people of the same age and sex with no record of military service. The 57,000 veterans in the study were born between 1945 and 1985 and served between 1960 and 2012. Their lengths of service ranged from a single day to over 40 years. This study demonstrates that although mental health problems were around 21% more common in the veterans, the risk was highest in those who left the military services earliest, including many people who did not complete training and who therefore could not have been in combat. The risk of mental health disorders decreased with longer service, and veterans who served for 10 years or more were less likely to experience a mental health problem than non-veterans. For those who left military service earliest, it is likely that pre-service factors, such as adverse childhood experiences, contributed both to their failure to complete military training and to their later risk of mental health problems. Emergency departments often function as the primary or single point of contact with organized health care after a suicide attempt. Therefore, their role in preventing further attempts and suicide deaths is increasingly recognized. However, it is difficult to discern which patients seen at emergency departments after attempted suicide are at greatest risk for further suicidal acts. Existing literature offers limited insights as few studies have investigated predictors of repeated attempts and suicide deaths in this group. To bridge this gap, researchers from the Mental Health Center Copenhagen in Denmark recently conducted a prospective longitudinal population-based study of individuals with a first-ever emergency department contact for attempted suicide. The study was supported by government and private grants. Data were retrieved from the Danish nationwide health registers. The sample included 12,000 patients. Of those, 16% repeated suicide attempts and 1.5% died by suicide during up to 16 years of follow-up. Those most prone to repeated attempts were women, individuals who had some form of psychiatric treatment within a year before the initial suicide attempt, and people whose initial suicide attempt was by hanging. Suicide deaths were predicted by age over 35 years, psychiatric hospitalization for the initial suicide attempt, and hanging as the method of the initial attempt. The authors conclude that anyone presenting to an emergency department after attempted hanging should be considered at particularly high risk for future suicidal acts, as this method predicts both repeated attempts and suicide. A five-year follow-up study supported by the Danish Research Council and private nonprofit foundations prospectively assessed the influence of personality factors on the long-term course of affective disorder among 300 patients suffering from their first 
lifetime episode of depression. The rate of remission decreased with comorbidity of a cluster C personality disorder and a higher level of the personality trait neuroticism. Cluster C personality disorders, which in this sample was mainly an avoidant personality structure, also increased the rate of recurrence after remission of first episode depression. Further, a higher level of extroversion increased the rate of conversion to bipolar disorder during the five years of follow-up. The results were robust for adjustment by a number of potentially confounding factors, including sex, age at onset, severity, and duration of the first depression, and psychiatric axis 1 comorbidity. The authors suggest that increased attention to personality deviances and comorbid personality disorders at an early stage could improve individualized long-term treatment of depression. Experimental studies in humans have indicated that cannabis use can induce psychotic symptoms. In the latest installment of his clinical and practical psychopharmacology column, Dr. Andrade looks at the possible role of cannabis use in triggering symptoms among those at risk of developing psychosis. The full text of this month's column is freely available online. Please visit the June Table of Contents at psychiatrist.com. In this issue, we highlight the following educational activity. Many mentally ill people spend time in correctional settings, and psychiatrists are involved in their evaluation and treatment. Explore this CME activity, independently developed by the CME Institute of Physicians Postgraduate Press, to better understand criminal psychiatric issues, including landmark mental health legal cases, and the nature of evaluations of defendants' competence to stand trial and criminal responsibility. In closing, be sure to visit us online for interactive activities from our CME Institute and more from the June issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you will join me next month for the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry soundbites.